Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kenji Ross, from EPAM Continuum. It's 2020. Between Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Snap, Insta, Discord, WeChat, SMS, 24-hour news, and the open web, human beings are arguably more connected to the world than at any time in human history. And yet, we are incredibly lonely. Lonelier than perhaps at any time in modern history. A buffet line of humanity parades across our screens each day, yet we are starved of true human connection. What's going on? Maybe we're lonely because of a decline in organic social connection. Maybe we're lonely because of a shift of values from life to work, because of the digital disjointedness of what we say online and what we do IRL. Maybe it's because of the apps that tell us about breaking news 10,000 miles away and don't do anything to connect us to what's happening in our neighborhoods a thousand feet away. Sachin Jain is the president and CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan. He spent a long and varied career working across the U.S. healthcare system, clinical medicine, academia, government, big pharma, and health insurance. But his interest in the health impacts of loneliness took root back in his undergrad days, across the river at Harvard, in a class taught by Robert Putnam, author of the famed book Bowling Alone. Sachin warned of an epidemic of loneliness in our country well before the start of the 2020 pandemic. But might our days of quarantine and isolation actually be the start of something better? Let's find out. Hey, Sachin. I'm so excited to get into this conversation with you, but I feel like we need to start by setting the table for some of the listeners. Um, A lot of people, myself included at times, can't really wrap their heads around how Feeling lonely can lead to real psychological changes, physiological changes, and health consequences. Do you have an elevator pitch to help skeptics of the science or regular people understand the real effects of loneliness on physical health? Yeah, I mean, to to make it most intuitive for folks, um, I actually connect it back to um, self care. So, um, you know, I think that there's people who question the physiologic effects or people who are skeptical about the physiologic effects. But I think what's far more intuitive is the idea that if you're not connected to others, uh, your sense of self-care actually potentially declines. And uh, people who are lonely take their medicines less, they get up and take showers less, they get ready for the world a little bit less. And as a result, their overall self-care actually declines. And Uh, I think that lack of self-care in the form of a poorer diet, lack of of medication adherence, uh, you know, ends up resulting very tangibly in poor health outcomes. And so this is something that, you know, we've paid a lot of attention to over the last number of years uh, at my previous company, CareMore, and now at my current company, Scan, uh, because we recognize that seniors as they age oftentimes don't have the level of connection with others that is critical to them maintaining their health and taking care of themselves. Wow, that's fascinating. So it's like the the social connections you have actually kind of give you cues to take care of yourself. And when you don't feel those social connections, then you stop taking as much care of yourself. Well, just think about, you know, life in the pandemic. Right. Um, you know, you, right now, many of us are not seeing other people. Uh, so we're, we're getting up uh, at, a, at a different time. Um, we may or may not be 
showering. We may or may not be eating it the same ways that we ordinarily do. Um, so there's something about connecting with other people that I think ends up being really important to our own sense of self and our own sense of what we need to do to be participants in society. And I think when you aren't necessarily doing all those things, you know, some of that sense of self-care deteriorates very tangibly and very visibly, uh, as can be evidenced by the decline in the number of folks who've actually had a haircut in the last three months. I like how you made that real for me and everybody else by uh, bringing <laughs> in the pandemic. That's absolutely true. Um, can we take a step back? And I, I'm really curious how, I, I know it didn't start in the pandemic. How did loneliness become an interest of yours? And it really started in college. I was a student of Robert Putnam. And uh, Robert Putnam, as you may know, uh, was the author of the, uh, the, the prominent book on, on American social connection um, that um, uh, Bowling Alone, that I think was a, a really critical volume that really showed us all the importance of social connection to social outcomes and, uh, you know, really did a systematic review of the literature and identified the ways in which social connection influences the health of American society. And I think made a pretty convincing case that we've seen a decline in social connection. You know, he calls it social capital between, you know, the 1960s and, you know, modern times. I would say that, um, uh, we are, uh, you know, you know, that, that experience of actually, um, of studying under him, you know, I think it, I was a pre-med student at the time, and I started to just make the connections between social connections and health and really resolved that, you know, in any opportunities I would have, that I would try to unlock the power of social connection to try to improve health outcomes. So that was, you know, I would say it really started for me in 2001 in uh, in Seaver Hall at, at Harvard College. Yeah, so 2001 and now um, even 2020, I, I think recently read in Forbes, um, you wrote, loneliness won't be solved through healthcare interventions alone. Instead, it will take vast social movement to conquer this epidemic that begins with every one of us. I'm just wondering, like in the years since then, since 2001 to um, 2020, how, how do you feel that, you know, Robert Putnam's thesis has, has evolved or has it or accelerated? I think it's accelerated. I, I mean, I think that we've we've seen less and less attention to you know f- focusing on our social connections with other, less and less attention focused on community participation. I think we've substituted a lot of community participation with online connection, uh, and I think you know we've we've seen the the American workforce become increasingly mobile as you know our economy has changed, and so people who used to grow up in a town and then work in that town as they uh, got older, no longer do that. And so, you know, I think there's a number of different factors, far more than we can probably talk about, you know, today that have led to, I think, an acceleration of, of the decline in social capital that Putnam foreshadowed, Putnam observed and, um, and foreshadowed over the coming, you know, 20, in the, in the ensuing 20 years. So Sachin, do you see the, um, the fact that, you know, a vast social movement is needed to conquer this epidemic? Do you see that as a, as a limitation to your work or is it, is it an opportunity for you? Well, I think it's both. I, you know, I, I used to be of the opinion that healthcare could solve every problem. And then, you know, and when you watch folks try to solve 
homelessness by taking responsibility for housing. You know, when you're you know a physician, you realize that you know, you can't do it all ultimately, and that there are limitations to what what we can do. And that's what got me started thinking about the fact that rather than trying to solve every problem in the exam room, we needed to take a look at how we as a society are participating with each other and how we as a society are defining the problem. And the truth is, is if this is not a complicated problem to solve. This is not inventing a vaccination for COVID-19. This is not inventing a new medicine for, you know, an untreated or mysterious illness. This is ultimately something that we could solve today by picking up the phone, by driving down the street, getting to know our neighbors, you know, participating more in community activities and community events. And that's where I think we need to create more of a social movement because we created this problem. I think we also have the potential to solve this problem. No, that's really inspiring to think about. And, you know, it brings to mind something that we focus a lot on here at uh, EPAM is ecosystems, right? That things, big systems are so interconnected no one player can really solve them. It sounds like, you know, you really bought into the importance of uh, community building as a means to take up arms against loneliness. Can you give us any examples of where, where you think it's working and at a, at a pace that's uh, sufficient to kind of catch the wave? Yeah, I think the best example is probably, you know, right here in, in my neighborhood in Playa del Rey, where, Many of us were feeling a high degree of social isolation. You know, my neighbors, many of us don't know each other. My neighbors across the street started an email thread. They kind of went door, door, to, door to door. And everyone on Friday evenings hosts an outdoor social distancing get together. And, you know, as a result, a group of you know strangers who are living alongside each other are no longer strangers in the same way that they, that they were just a few months ago. And, you know, when the, the impact that that has on how you feel and your sense of connection to a community, to a town, to um, a neighborhood is, is dramatic. Uh, you know, I used to drive down the street and see faces and wonder who these people are. Um, now I know who they are and they're my friends. And so, you know, I think a, a, a lot about, you know, Scott and Kristen and what they did to bring us together as a, as a neighborhood, as a street. And I think about what would happen if, you know, there was a Scott or Kristen on every street in America doing what we're talking about. I think the effects would be dramatic. I think um, my, my belief is you'd probably see lower levels of crime. Uh, you would see, you know, higher degrees of social connection, happiness. You might even see health outcomes move uh, because we were, we would all be in, in relationships with our neighbors, where we were taking care of each other. So I think that, um, you know, this is not, I, again, I want to reinforce that this is not the stuff that needs, you know, new legislation. It doesn't need big uh, changes in regulation or public policy. This requires us to think differently about who we are. I think humans are biologically and anthropologically very social creatures, but you know, changes in modern society that are focused on work over life, you know, the digitization of our lives has all, have all coalesced, I think, in many ways to create a society that is far more disconnected and disjointed than 
all of us would like. It's, it's the classic collective action problem or tragedy of the commons. I think every single one of us now has to, you know, do our small part. And before long, I think you'd, you'd see a very different social consciousness emerge among the American public. Yeah, I think you're right, Sachin. You know, I wanted to return based on that, um, you, you know, you brought up the digital life and uh, Robert Putnam. I think in 2001, one thing that was very different is we didn't all have smartphones. I don't know if you've read Sherry Turkle and Reclaiming Conversation, but in that, she really brings up this uh, kind of duality, right? That um, smartphones and, and digital are so intertwined in our lives and they can be a force for isolation, but they can also be a force for um, social connection. And even in your example, I loved it because it started with an email thread, I thought, right? And that's that's a digital connection, but it, it turned to physical. Um, can you talk about that a little bit in terms of one thing we're exploring here at EPAM is, you know, what is the role of, of technology not to isolate, but to connect? And one thing we know at Continuum is one size does not fit all. So maybe people respond to different things. Is that something you've thought about in the um, efforts you're leading? Absolutely. And I would say, I think it's exactly as you describe. I think digital can be an enabler of a facilitator of in-person connection. But I think it's, I think we have to think about ourselves as, you know, human animals, right? <laughs> as a, you know, and the idea is that, you know, we're social creatures. We like to connect with each other in person. And so the point is, is that digital should be a facilitator of that in-person connection that speaks to something that's very instinctual inside of every one of us, as opposed to, you know, a substitute. And I think, you know, technologists and technology companies have to take a hard look at this. And I think it gets back to something I've been thinking about a lot more, which is the ethics of technology and the fact that, you know, folks who are developing these technologies, I think have an ethical obligation to think about the impact on uh, this this, this technology has on our everyday lives and how we engage with each other and take responsibility for it. And I think this is one of our bigger crises as a society is I think the people who develop these technologies aren't necessarily taking, you know, responsibility for the ethical implications that they create, you know, you know, take genetic testing, um, you know, which is now widespread in the form of 23andMe and Ancestry.com. It creates massive, I think, you know, ethical challenges, new, introduces new ethical challenges. I think the people who lead Facebook and LinkedIn and, uh, you know, real and, and, and all the companies, Twitter, all the companies that we're, we're that we are, um, have now become part of the fabric of our lives need to take a hard look at how they're changing our lives and ask the question, are these changes good? These, 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 these sometimes get presented as, um, as, you know, kind of conflicting with the profit motive of these companies. But I, I take a slightly different view, which is the profit motive is aligned with long-term sustainability of all of these companies. And I think, you know, the tide of, of opinion around kind of companies that are society changing will change, ne- you know, for the negative as people wake up to the idea that these companies are, are destroying our lives as opposed to enabling them. And so um, my view is we have to take a hard look at 
uh, as business leaders, we have to take a hard look at how the things that we do um, influence you know, our social fabric. Yeah, Sachin, I I think you're you're right in some ways in terms of you know there there is a lot of harm that's been caused, but I I take a view of um, you know that the dopamine effect is such an easy thing to you know ride out in terms of uh, how how to make money, right? So we we hear all the time that you know. Facebook and and some of these other interfaces for for good reason are based on you know getting a getting a natural high or a, a high in terms of uh, response. But do you think that there's there's other science that's equally um, compelling that can change the tide in terms of like you know it's not dopamine it's oxytocin or you know it's building trust. Are these things as powerful in the human psyche, or is that what you're talking about? That even if they're not as powerful, we as uh, technologists need to put on the ethical brakes and um, think about what we're doing. I think we need to take put on the brakes and take a look at what we're doing. I think we have to be constantly examining. And, I, and I'm not arguing that we need to kind of preserve our our status quo as a as a society. You know, not at all. I think we have to evolve our society, but we have to examine the puts and takes. We have to examine what we gain and what we lose. And too often we don't we don't look at that loss equation enough and then think about how we can mitigate that loss. And that's what I'm most concerned about. And you know with these with the emergence of emergence of technologies that create you know more so-called connection, we have to look at are there ways that we can use them to enable that more natural and more instinctive social connection of being in person, connecting with one another, as opposed to, you know, replacing it all together. And I think that would lead to different design frameworks. It would lead to, you know, different be- embedded behavioral economics. Uh, and so I think that's what, what, I, what I'm referring to. Yeah. I, I wanted to take that and take it to a very positive um, outcome from your, your work. Um, can you talk about, care more and how you're able to reduce hospital utilization and readmission rates. And was that, you know, a people play, a systems play or both? Um, I think it was, it was, it was human connection for people who are starving for it, literally starving for human connection. Many of the folks that we would outreach to as part of our togetherness program would answer the, the telephone and they would say, hello, Armando. And they knew that the only per- they knew that the person on the phone was Armando because Armando was literally the only person in the world that was reaching out to that person on a semi-regular basis. And part of what Armando was doing was encouraging, you know, you know, the the person that he was calling to take better care of her of her health, to participate more in in society and community come in for an annual wellness check or physical, those small nudges ultimately translated into you know, fewer admissions and better health outcomes for the people who are part of the program. I think you're so right that authentic human touch is not only important in, in healthcare, but in any brand um, and service, that's something that we at Continuum start with is that, um, that human connection and that human need. 
So it makes a lot of sense that 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 would help drive drive things. Are you applying what you learned uh, at Caremore at at Scan Health Plan as well? Absolutely, and I, you know, Scan is an incredible organization that have been taking on the loneliness issue for for years already. Um, we actually employ a number of our you know senior citizen members to make regular outreach phone calls to fellow members to let them know um, you know what's going on in the community to help encourage them to take advantage of the wide array of benefits that we offer, you know, our, our scan health plan members. And so, you know, I think that became particularly important for us in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, because we ultimately had people who um, uh, were able to outreach to folks at a time when no one else was outreaching to them to make sure that they were okay. So, you know, I think um, we are going to only expand these efforts and deepen them to make sure that we are outreaching to everyone who needs outreach. I think one of the hardest parts about loneliness is really identifying it. Um, I think we tend to confuse loneliness and social isolation. Loneliness is the subjective feeling uh, that people have uh, around being socially isolated. Socially isolated is the physical state of actually being uh, isolated, and they're not exactly the same thing. And so um, what we're trying to do is make sure we're better and better at identifying folks, many folks who are, who are not socially isolated are in fact lonely. There's, you know, and so this is a complicated problem that I think has, you know, a lot of different, that, that comes in a lot of different forms. Such so I said, I think you said a couple of really important things. One, one is uh, the hardest part is identifying it sometimes. And then also that, you know, human outreach in a um, positive way, is, is very important to the outcome. I want to ask you again, like as you try to build a, an organization that has all, all of the skill, right? The identifying as well as the outreach, does technology play a part in training or um, spreading best practices? It, it absolutely does. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, one of the hardest parts about this program, you know, that we built together this program was, was actually um, uh, getting people appropriately oriented to the task. I think, you know, at, a, at its most basic level, you know, our program, just to, I realize we haven't described it in any detail, but at its most basic level, was essentially a friendly outreach program uh, by, you know, care more employees to our, our members. And the, you know, it was a weekly phone call uh, in its most basic form. And, you know, I think when we started this program, we started with volunteers who, you know, work for the company who ultimately would make these regular phone calls to individuals that, that they, that they were, that who were either self-identified as lonely or who were diagnosed as lonely in a clinical encounter. The interesting thing about this was that, um, I think many people imagined that it would be something like Tuesdays with Maury, <laughs> meaning they thought they would call this person and that, you know, it would be this great friendship. And they underestimated, I think, some of the, the despair that many of the folks that we were outreaching to were feeling and the, the true isolation that they were experiencing. And, you know, we needed to build training platforms and use technology to build training platforms to actually more appropriately orient people to the task of engaging with uh, people who are, are actually 
in many ways very challenging to engage with. No, that um, example of Tuesdays with Maury really hits home. I think it's such a positive movie, but anyone who's cared for someone who's who's going through uh, something serious and chronic um, can attest that it, it does get very dark and it's not something that's that's easy to prepare for. That's right. And and so, you know, the biggest fear we had kind of building the program was ultimately folks would get excited to do this kind of outreach work and then realize it didn't meet their expectations and then create even more disappointment, you know, in the person that they were outreaching to. And so some of what we had to do is build some upfront mechanisms to test people's commitment. Um, and those were delivered you know, through some, you know, through uh, some education and as well as some, um, some testing that we did of volunteers. Yeah, such an, in in that case, I wanted to bring up something that you know at EPAM, we've we've been involved in you know training for extreme conditions, and when you think of like oil rigs and getting a repair correct the first time, or a surgeon doing robotic surgery, AI comes into play. That there are some things you can you can simulate with artificial intelligence that you can't really um, do with and and sorry artificial intelligence and immersive technologies um, that you can't make readily available um, through through regular means of training. Those emotionally immersive experiences, um, is that of interest or is that something that you think could fly in the, the near future? I think it could. I think it absolutely could. You know, I think we, we have to kind of define the task um, clearly, right, and align around solving the problem and and I think your the analogy to you know kind of preparing um, you know for kind of these big technical feats is, is a is a good one because this isn't simple work it isn't you know, it, it's simple on the surface but I think um, is is quite meaningful and uh, quite emotionally complicated when you actually dig into it. Yeah, and I don't want to minimize the uh, you know the. Um difficulty of the work you're doing, but I also know that um, a lot of people are suffering more from loneliness during COVID. Do you have any kind of um, bright stories in terms of what what you've learned since the start of COVID and how? Um... Well, I think there's a number of people who have um, kind of negative stories about feelings of social isolation. I think there's an equal number of folks who are who are experiencing a revival and renewal of personal human connection. I, every day I talk to someone who is a little bit sheepish about admitting that COVID has been good for them in the sense that they're spending more time with their families. Uh, I had one friend say to me, you know, I've spent more time with my son in the last six months than I had in the previous five years of his life. Uh, that is going to have enduring benefit for our society. I think, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, We'll look back and we may have a society that is more connected, more integrated, because we were almost forced to be so. Um, that is my hope, my most optimistic hope coming out of this really unprecedented situation. No, it sounds like you think if, if we have lost a bit of our cultural muscles, then COVID is a, uh, a training ground that's in some ways helping us regain them. I, I completely agree. Agree with that. Great. Sachin, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us.
EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to our guest, Sachin Jain, for a thought-provoking conversation. He was interviewed by one of our finest engineers, Garv Rahatki. Our producer is Ken Gordon. Kip Palalas is our sound engineer. And I'm your host, Kenji Ross. Until the next time, thank you. Thank you.